Let's jump into verses 1 through 5 of 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, we ask that you may bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, as we jumped into 1 Peter, we saw that we have this new identity um, as Christians. Those who are followers of Christ, we're exiles. It's not a particularly exciting identity. It means that we're not home yet. It means that all the pain and all the things we experience in this world make sense. Even if you become a Christian, your life doesn't necessarily get better. It changes. You, you know God. You're a son and daughter of God. But you still aren't home yet. You're in the trials, you're in the circumstances, you're in the ups and downs of life. You're an exile, if you like. A refugee is maybe how we might say it um, in this day and age. You're not in your homeland. We're not in heaven yet. And this letter looks a lot at the suffering that Christians experience, whether through persecution from Satan or just the ups and downs of normal life. And Peter's very aware of that. That's why he's writing his letter, because just like you and I, with all the ups and downs in our life, he knew that the people in these churches, in those cities that we read out, they needed help. They needed instruction. They needed to know how to live for Jesus in a hostile world that isn't their home. But then you've got to look at this verse 3 and think, how can Peter begin a letter to suffering people with celebration and praise? Shouldn't he begin with consolation, with care and comfort? Shouldn't there be tea and sympathy and a box of tissues? I mean, they're going through the ringer, and he begins with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Seems a bit insensitive, you know, really. But Peter begins the body of his letter and really sets up the theme for the entire letter, instead of with comfort, with celebration. A celebration of hope. And that's the title of my message this morning, a celebration of hope. Let me read those verses again so that you feel you, know, you are exiles and then, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter's letter erupts with praise. Blessed be, he declares, using the old ancient Hebrew way of extolling God. Blessed be God. That doesn't just mean praise God. That means by definition, God is blessed. That's who he is. He is the great being. And now we're joining in that worship and that praise. That's how Peter begins with this joy. 
Yes, they are suffering. Yes, they're downtrodden. Yes, they're exiles. Yes, their lives are difficult. Yes, their pains are real. Their prospects are dim. It's not getting better anytime soon. But what Peter does here is instructive. Because he doesn't begin with consolation, he begins with celebration. And this should cause us to pause and think, why is that? Well, because for Peter, there's something far greater. There are realities far more glorious and amazing than their present suffering and circumstances. And he wants to draw their attention and our attention to those realities first before instructing them in how to deal with their suffering and pain. Because knowing these realities will fundamentally change how they view everything else in their troubled lives. That's why Peter begins here. And it's the same for us today also. We're just like the readers of Peter's letter. We come to church this morning carrying all manner of pains, burdens, hurts, fears, anxieties, traumas, wounds, that if we're honest, and I want to be honest, they may never be fixed in your lifetime. Christianity doesn't promise fixing all of these problems here and now through faith in Christ. No, we need something greater than those realities to help get us through. And that's why Peter gives us a celebration of hope to frame how to live in a hostile world. First and foremost is to live in the praise of God, in the worship of God. Because for Peter, the hope he has in the future invades the pain he feels in the present and transforms it. For Peter, the hope that he can set his mind on for himself and his hearers and us invades the pain he feels in the present and transforms it. That's the power of hope. That's why he's celebrating. Because when we have hope, a true hope, we can get through. We can go again. We can deal with whatever comes our way. And without hope, well, the pains and the struggles will overwhelm us cause us to shrink back. And sadly, if you've been following the news, as a prominent NRL coach this week, took his own life. That's the power of hope and the absence of hope in contrast. And so in these short verses, in verses 3 to 5, Peter gives us three reasons for his celebration. Three reasons that will fuel and transform the way we are to look at our lives so that we can join with Peter in our blessed bees. Reason, or three reasons. First one, because our hope is established. The second, because our hope is guaranteed. And thirdly, because our hope is guarded. We'll go through each of those one by one. And I have one simple hope for us this morning. That by meditating on our eternal hope, we too will overflow with passionate praise, no matter our circumstances. I believe that that's why these verses are here, that by meditating on our eternal hope, it will transform us, that we can actually join in with Peter through our suffering, through our pain, through the highs and the lows, and say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at these three reasons that will fuel us. Reason number one, because our hope is established. Let's meditate on verse three together. Blessed be 
the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we're praising. And this is what he has done. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The first reason Peter gives for his passionate celebration is because our hope is established. It's established. It's founded. Not by us. Not by our gifts, our ability, our power, our grit, our determination, our circumstances, our positive mindset, a glass half full mentality. No, our hope is established by God himself. Let's look at how he draws attention to God in the first verses. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to what? His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We have hope because of what God has done for us. And the hope is an eternal living hope. What does that mean, to have a living hope? Well, we need to kind of unpack this a little bit further. Look at what God has done. Because of His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. That means when God looked out upon us, as we've sung so well this morning, thank you Mick and the band, we've seen that we were actually in a miserable state. We weren't all rosy and pretty half decent and, you know, we scrub up okay. But when God looks out upon the world, He sees us in our misery, in our sin, in our brokenness. He sees us in our helplessness. And in fact, He sees us dead spiritually. And instead of leaving us in this state and just going, oh, they're polluted, this is, this is gone. In His great mercy, He has had pity upon us. And he enters into our story, takes our spiritually ruined souls, and does a miracle. He causes us to be born again. That phrase, um, you know, born again, has been used in many different ways in contemporary Christianity. But really, it relates to what we call the doctrine of regeneration, to be reborn. It's a vital doctrine that we must understand so that we can celebrate it. To be born again means that our soul is reborn. It's a spiritual reality. We're born once into this world in a physical body, but the Bible tells us that when we're born into this world, we're born spiritually dead. That's why we run from God. That's why every human on earth sins. That's why we by nature reject God. And so we need to be born again spiritually. This is how Jesus speaks of it in John chapter 3 to a epically religious and righteous dude, Nicodemus. Jesus answered him and said, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, probably what you're thinking, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. No one is born a Christian. No one is born going to heaven. No one is born acceptable in God's sight. It doesn't matter our religious background, how holy our parents are, how good we are in this life. 
the only way we can see the kingdom of God, the only way we can have a living hope is if we are born again by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God comes into our soul and makes us new on the inside. And when we're new on the inside, suddenly we have eyes to see. Suddenly God becomes attractive. Suddenly the Bible becomes, you know, something you want to read. It becomes like honey. It's tasty. Suddenly going to church is different. You, you want to be at church because you want to be with God's people. Suddenly you love God and you want to live for Him and you start doing all kinds of strange things because you're alive to God. You're a different person. That's what it means to be born again. In 1 Peter 1, verse 23, Peter says it like this, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. So we're born again by the Spirit. The way the Spirit works is by the Word of God, by the preaching of the Gospel. We hear, we're regenerate, we put our faith in Christ, and our entire future and eternity is changed in an instant, forever. Not perishable, imperishable. We'll never die. And how much work do we do to be born? Well, you just, you're a baby, you're, you're in the womb, you're not quite, nothing, right? You don't do anything. No one comes into the birthing suite other than just in cuteness and says, well done. You were such a terrific, you did really great. You knew how to swim through that birth canal and we won't go into any more detail. You get it. Well done. No, you congratulate the parents, you congratulate and thank God because being born requires nothing of our skill, nothing of our merit. And it's the same spiritual birth. It wasn't us. We're not good. We're not great. We've got nothing to represent. We've got nothing to puff our chest about. And it's the same between us and God. And that's why he's praising God, because this is a reality that we cannot do for ourselves. It has to be done to us. And therefore, because it has been done, the impossible has become possible. Oh, there is reason to praise. And if you meditate and reflect a little bit more on what it means to be born again, think about what it means to be born into this life. Whoever you're born to, your parents, you receive from them their half of their genetic pool, for better or worse. Uh, you receive their status and position in life, for better or worse. You receive where you're going to be living, the type of family dynamic you're going to be brought up into, uh, the uh, inheritance that one day you might fall, uh, find for yourself or not. Um, you're born into either a good home or a bad home or a mix of both. That's all wrapped up in our birth. But now, if we are born again spiritually, well, now we have a, like we sung before, a new spiritual reality. We, have, we are connected to, we're in the lineage of, we're in the generation of God Himself. We are a son and daughter of God. That means that we have a new gene pool, that we have a new inheritance, that we have a, a new hope, a new life, a new status, a new cultural identity, a new way of viewing ourselves. So it doesn't matter how low you are in this world. If you're born again, you're of the highest status of anyone on earth, shared by all those in Christ. And so we are born again to a living hope. Because if we're part of God's family, God can never die, therefore we can never die too. Our hope cannot be thwarted. Our hope cannot be taken away. It's not futile. It's alive. And how did that come about? Well, Peter says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The ground of our hope and the means of securing it is not tied up in us. Peter is at pains to make it clear 
but it's tied up in an event that has occurred and cannot be undone. Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. He died for our sins. He was buried. He truly was punished by God. And he rose again to new and everlasting life. And because he rose, we will rise with him. We're united to Christ. He's our brother, spiritually speaking. And because we share in his death, we share in his resurrection. If he died and we died with him, if he rose, we rose with him. And therefore, our eternal living hope is secured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why it's not just a good story. It's the basis of our religion. If Jesus didn't rise, we have no hope. This is a joke. This is a waste of time. This is a community project if Christ didn't rise again. But if he rose, oh, then we have a living hope that cannot be touched even by death. So put it all together. What has God done? Well, in his mercy, he has caused our new birth through Christ's resurrection to give us a living hope. And when you meditate upon that, and you might need to do it during the week because we're going through it so quick now, the result ought to be praise and joy and celebration just like Peter because even in the darkness of your life this is an untouchable reality it's a fixed reality it's immovable and so when we meditate and fix our eyes on this reality and know it in the depths of our soul the necessary result ought to be Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you may not say it like that because it sounds a bit strange, but you say, praise the Lord. How good is this? When you remind yourself of who you once were, when you forget, uh, if you've been a Christian a long time, sometimes we can forget, we were going to hell. We were hopeless. We were futile. We were dead in sin. But now in Christ Jesus, we have new birth new hope, and eternal life. And therefore, we ought to praise. Jared Mellinger says, a Christian who is not living a life of praise is a Christian who has lost sight of the mercy of God. The more we know of his great mercy, the louder the blessed be of praise that emerges from our souls. Friends, have you got a firm grip on your soul on his mercy to you in Christ. The way to test it probably is the loudness of your blessed be, the consistency of your blessed be. So that's the first reason. Even in the darkness of life, we can celebrate like Peter does because our hope is established. It's a fact. The second reason is because our hope is guaranteed. So he, by his great mercy, verse 3 and 4, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4, to what end? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You can tell Peter's a preacher because he's just like whacking out terms there. And you can, maybe he was even saying this out loud and he was on a roll. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The second reason he gives for his passionate celebration of hope is because our hope is guaranteed. Good news, friends. 
It's in the bank. <laughs> it's secured. Our future is determined. And that reality of that guarantee of our hope, that inheritance that we have in the future, is meant to permeate the way we view our life in the darkness and the trials of it here and now. It, 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 this hope of the future is meant to change the way we view now. I came across a very interesting paragraph from Viktor Frankl, who was a survivor of the Nazi concentration camp Auschwitz and three other concentration camps. He was a psychologist in Europe. And he had something very interesting to say about what helps you to survive in a concentration camp. I wonder what you would answer. What, what do you think was the difference between life and death in a concentration camp? You might think physical health and strength. You might think vitamins and minerals, adequate clothing, food and heating. And of course, they all play a factor. But according to Viktor Frankl, there's something else that actually made the difference. Listen to what he said. The prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. Usually it began with the prisoner refusing one morning to get dressed and wash or to go out on the parade grounds. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. He just lay there, hardly moving. If this crisis was brought about by illness, he refused to be taken to the sick bay or to do anything to help himself. He simply gave up. There he remained, lying in his own excreta, and nothing bothered him any more. According to Viktor Frankl, what was the difference between life and death in a concentration camp? Hope. The belief that you had a future ahead of you. The belief that there would be a day after the day of your last day in internment. But once you lost your hope of a future outside of a concentration camp, it doesn't matter how physically healthy you were in the camp, it doesn't matter what food or clothing was supplied to you, you would begin to shut down. That's the power of hope. And so Peter wants to tell us that we have a future, a glorious future. And my friends, it is guaranteed. It is guaranteed, can never be shaken. We have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven. That inheritance throws back to the Old Testament promise to Abraham that he was going to be given by God a land, a, a new country to live in, an inheritance, the, the land of Israel, uh, and that he would be a blessing, that he would have a, a rich and vast uh, generations that came from him. And the Israelites eventually got that land and they walked in and there were fields and towns and cities and wells and everything, walls that they hadn't built, and they walked into this blessed inheritance. But due to their sin, they lost it. They defiled the land and they lost their grip on their inheritance. Shortly after writing this letter, Rome, where Peter writes it from, would make its descent to Jerusalem and sack 
Jerusalem, destroy the temple, destroy the inheritance. But our inheritance is different. That era has gone. Our inheritance now is not in a physical place here on earth, but in a heavenly reality. We have an inheritance that is the land of heaven, wherever God would bring that to be, and it is guaranteed. It is, as the, as the text says, imperishable. That means it's free from death and decay. It's not deteriorating like my shares. It's undefiled. Freedom from moral impurity. Heaven will never be stained by sin. There is no serpent in heaven who will tempt us. We will be free from sin forevermore. And it's unfading. It's free from the natural ravages of time. Peter wants us to fix our soul on that. So that when we go through all that we go through in our life, this is meant to invade that. And we're meant to start banking on that and thinking about that so that we know we have a certain future, a guaranteed future. And it changes the way we're meant to live here and now, knowing that here is not our home. Jesus said himself in Matthew chapter 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Well, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But instead, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friends, put your hope, put your heart in heaven where you will be face to face with God for all eternity in joy, in fellowship, in a physical resurrected body that will never get old, that will never decay in a life that is unending but always good. Fullness of joy forevermore. So don't think clouds, harps, you know, little fat cherub babies. Uh, that's, that's not heaven. Heaven will be a real world, a tasty world, a joyful world, and it will never fade. It will never get tired. You'll never... It'll be like doom scrolling, but the opposite, right? <laughs> you'll be scrolling through heaven and you'll just be like, this is great and this is great and this is great and it'll just never end. Okay, that wasn't in my notes, but anyway, you got that. C.S. Lewis said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Oh, how good is that? As we see the deterioration and the decay and the moral sin, we can know, ah, I was made for somewhere else, and that's where I'm going, and nothing can take it away. You know, I was at um, Northmere Bowling Club the other week, and I was with a bunch of the soccer parents, and the raffle came out. And I was like, oh, you know what? I'm going to put a, buy a ticket in the raffle and try and win a meat tray. And I went up, and I realized that there was like some 18,000 tickets in the raffles. So I was like, okay. <laughs> and then once we found out, the parents were like, yeah, I never win. I, I never win the, the raffle. And I didn't win. Uh, and sadly, I missed out. And if you're all the type of person that feels like, I always miss out. I always seem to miss the beat. I always invest at the, the top of the market and sell at the bottom. I, I never seem to have. Well, here's a guarantee. You will win. It's not a raffle. It's certain. 
And so put your soul there. Meditate your mind on that. Let those words fill you. And the result will be, what will it be? Oh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is good news, right? This is great news. This is so good. But we ought to be thinking about how do I know if I'll make it there? How do I get between here and there? Well, that's the third reason Peter gives us for blessing and praising God. Number one, because our hope is established. Number two, because our hope is guaranteed. And number three, because our hope is guarded. Our hope is guarded. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And that's you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The third reason for our passionate praise is because our hope is guarded. We have an inheritance, it won't spoil. It's kept in heaven for us, but how will we make it there to enjoy it? Well, we are guarded by God himself until we make it there in the end. We are guarded by God himself. (laughs) That is just so comforting. But it doesn't always feel like that, does it? It doesn't always feel like God's guarding our life and helping us to make it there. What do we do about all the suffering and the shocks and the pain and the dislocation and the trials we feel here and now? It doesn't feel like a whole lot of guarding. It feels like God's let us go and then we're getting hit by wave after wave. But what Peter wants his readers to know and for us to know is this. God's guarding does not protect us from suffering, but protects us through suffering. God's guarding of his precious people doesn't protect us from suffering, but protects us through that suffering. We are exiles. This world is not our home. We follow a betrayed tortured and crucified Savior who said, if you follow me, the same things will happen to you. We're not protected from suffering as Christians, but we're protected through our suffering. So if guarding doesn't mean the prevention of pain, what does it mean? Well, Peter tells us we are guarded by God's power through faith, through faith. What he means is this, The way we make it to the end is our faith in Jesus Christ. And what God does is he guards our faith. He protects our faith because it's faith that saves us. There is no salvation apart through faith in Jesus Christ. Without faith in Christ, we aren't connected to Christ. If we're not connected to Christ, we have no inheritance. We have no share in heaven. So we must, all the days of our life, no days off, put our faith in Christ and make it to the end. And what God does for his elect children, whom he loves, who he sprinkled with his blood, is he guards our faith so that we never turn on Christ. It's the great doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that all those who are truly saved will be kept until the end. 
It works in both ways. We're not meant to rest on our laurels thinking, well, I put my faith in Christ as a kid. I was baptized in this. I did this. That's not what saves us. What saves us is a continuing faith in Christ until the day we die. And the way that that happens is the God of all eternity guards your faith. That's the security we have. We need each other. We need our friends. We need our church. But ultimately, the strength we will have to make it to the end is the promise that God will guard our faith and we can rest in His security. You may be lonely today. You may be single and hoping for someone to come in and help guide and guard and protect you. But here is an even better comfort, God Himself. He has promised to guard you and your faith. And He guards our faith for what? A salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We often think of salvation as a past act. I was saved when I was eight years old, for my case. I put my hand up at a church camp. I want to believe in Jesus. Eight years old, I was saved. But often, and in Peter's letter, he's going to talk about salvation as a future act. Because we are saved, but we are being saved, and we will be saved. That there will come a time when what doesn't look like a victorious people, although as beautiful as you all are, one day salvation will come. Christ will come from heaven with the clouds of angels and history will be wrapped up. Those who are in Christ will be declared, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master and that's when our salvation will be. Uh, That's our blessed hope, that one day in the future Christ will come. So we have past grace. He's caused us to be born again. We have future grace in inheritance and we have present grace. He will guard us until that day. And the type of, to put it in like a slightly, I don't know, not, I'll put it in in an illustration that came to my mind. Imagine you're in a hostage situation, which is not the greatest thing to imagine on a Sunday morning, but you find out that James Bond is on his way to save you. I think you'd have a high degree of hope, especially if you're an attractive lady, that you're going to get out of that situation alive. That's 1 Peter 3 to 5. There you go. So how can exiles, downtrodden, beaten up by life, have a song to sing? No matter what's going on. Peter doesn't start with tissues and comfort. He starts with celebration because of these realities. Sam Storm said in his commentary, and this is what I want to happen for us, it is our salvation, our hope, our inheritance kept in heaven for us that serves, listen, as a fountain bubbling out and a reservoir of deep delight in God in order to sustain and strengthen the Christian soul when everything else threatens to destroy us. We have a deep reservoir this morning that we've encountered. And let us draw upon it. And as we meditate upon it, what ought to happen, slowly but surely, bit by bit, as we apprehend these truths, oh, The fountain of praise, the deep delights will issue forth into blessed be. 
we will sing out, blessed be because my hope is established. Blessed be because my hope is guaranteed. Blessed be because my hope is guarded. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray and ask that you would help us to draw from this deep reservoir of truth this morning so that no matter what we are going through, we can and will bless your holy name. Help us as a church to know how to counsel and comfort one another, not just with tears and tissues, but with these glorious truths that ought to invade and transform the way that we live. Lord, we declare, even in lack of joy, even in darkness of life, blessed be your holy name. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.